Welcome to the sermon podcast of South Hills Church in Costa Mesa. My name is Chris Kretzu, and I'm the campus pastor here. Thank you for carving out the time to listen to this today. I hope that you will be encouraged and challenged, and ultimately that you'll have a deeper sense of God's love for you. I'll be back after the message is over, but until then, I hope that you enjoy this episode. Uh, we are in week three of December, the third Sunday of December, week three of our Christmas series, and, uh, and I'm excited uh, to be able to talk about what we have today. Um, I, I'll say, because you guys know I, I do a test run at 9 a.m. of this sermon every week, uh, and um, I think that, you know, Christmas, uh, while it is full of joy and celebration and goodness, uh, and, and that is true of today also, today also touches on a little bit of the themes of some of the challenges that come with Christmas as well. So uh, I felt like people in the first service, um, you know, weren't as happy with me uh, as I wanted them to be, but, uh, but this is just what it is, okay? I have a microphone, you're here, uh, and we killed the Wi-Fi, so you have nothing else to do. The Argentina game is over, uh, and so we're just, we're all here. So, no, have you guys ever, um, I'm sure you have, uh, there, there's these times when we say things to people, and the words that we're saying uh, are different than the intention that we have. Or maybe it's easier to think of times when people have said things to you, and you can tell that they mean something different than what they're saying. Uh, as a parent, uh, there's times when I do this to my kids. There's times when I hear other people talk about this with their kids. Some examples, and, and these are a little bit silly examples, but just bear with me here. You know, this idea of uh, someone might say like, oh, wow, your, your daughter is so artistic uh, or creative, which can easily mean like, man, nothing that she's wearing matches uh, at all, <laughs> which is a silly thing to say. You know, there's this idea of, uh, you know, if you say, oh, your son is really strong-willed. Wink, uh, which is like, yeah, your kid's kind of a jerk, uh, is really what the, So there, we're familiar, there's these ideas uh, where people will say things, and it's like, oh, okay, uh, I think I know both of the things that you're trying to say. Um, I serve on this team of Costa Mesa pastors, different churches in Costa Mesa. We work together to care for different local outreach needs. Monica talked a bit about our partnership with uh, a school on the west side, and that comes out of this partnership. And so I'm part of the lead team of these pastors. And uh, we have four quarterly meetings, and the last one was about a week ago, and um, it was a long one. It was a four-hour meeting is what it was scheduled for. And uh, none of us have anything going on as pastors in the month of December anyways, so why not? Um, <laughs> But uh, I said, you know what, I'm going to make this as fun as possible. So uh, I know some of these pastors really well. Uh, some of them I don't know as well. Uh, all kinds of different churches and backgrounds and approaches, which is beautiful, and I love it. And so I decided to show up in the most obnoxious Christmas sweater that I could think of. And I walked in, and, uh, and I got a lot of these comments. Oh, wow. <laughs> You're so festive. Uh, <laughs> Which basically is like, I'm really embarrassed for you today. Uh, we're the spiritual leaders of our community, and this is how you want to show up. No, I'm just kidding. 
uh, we all have uh, this idea of what it means to say something uh, and there be a secondary meaning, to be told something that has a deeper meaning. Uh, and in this series, we've been looking at these gifts that the wise men, the magi have been giving Jesus and how each of these gifts, they actually have deeper meanings and deeper symbolism. In Matthew 2, uh, 10 and 11 is the, the kind of key verse from this story. It says... something. I have it in my notes. I just didn't plan on reading it from my notes. When they saw the star, talking about the wise men, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of, and everybody together for the last time, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We've been looking at each one of these gifts and the symbolism that each one of these represented. And today, we're looking at this final gift, the gift of myrrh, which did anybody think that they would be able to spell that without seeing it on the screen? Just like M-U-R, I don't know. So uh, myrrh, uh, I want to tell you guys a little bit of what it is. Myrrh is an oil that's extracted from a, a species of like smaller thorny trees or bushes. It's an oil that's extracted from them. And there was a few different uses from myrrh. Uh, the primary one is that it was used as like a medicinal ointment. Uh, so if you had cuts or bruises or wounds, that they would put this oil, myrrh, on that wound as a way to help a person heal. Um, one of the other uses of myrrh and one of the other primary uses, especially in the first century, is myrrh was one of the main uh, ingredients or tools when they would uh, prepare dead bodies for burial, when they would embalm dead bodies, they used myrrh. So if we're keeping track in the Christmas story, you have these rich wise men show up and they give gold, which is great. They give incense, which is nice. And then they give embalming fluid, uh, which feels just a little bit odd uh, in some ways. Um, and it, it's interesting because these gifts, they get more odd as they go. But I think in a way, they get just really more specific as they go. And there's theologians and writers and commentators that have talked about this, and I've been reading so much of this. And, and so some of them, they say that to give parents a gift of myrrh was a way of saying, your kid is a troublemaker. He ends up hit a lot. He ends up with a lot of wounds. Maybe he's a little klutzy. Uh, to give parents this gift of myrrh was, was a way of saying that your kid's going to probably ruffle some feathers in life. And it's fascinating when we step back and we think of the double meaning of gifts uh, and also the symbolism of what that represented for Jesus. Other theologians and writers, they talk about how, you know, these wise men, they were astrologers, uh, kind of aristocrats, uh, pro potentially kings from Persia. And they were familiar with this prophecy of Jesus' birth because hundreds and hundreds of years before, Israel was enslaved in Babylon. They were living in Babylon. And so uh, Israel's uh, prophets and scriptures became familiar to them. And so these wise men, they actually had studied these scriptures and they were waiting for this prophecy to come true. And so some uh, theologians and writers, they say, well, if they knew to look for this star and to travel thousands of miles, and they knew who this child was going to be born as, then they likely knew how his life would end, that ultimately he would give himself as a sacrifice and die. And so whether we're looking at this from an aspect of 
kind of a medicinal ointment to help heal the wounds of a troublemaker, or whether we look at this as the embalming fluid needed for a God who loved us so much that he gave his life on the cross for us, I think both of these meanings and symbols can really be true. And the chief priests and the leaders were trying to convince Pilate to crucify Jesus. Um, it's interesting, the, the reasons they gave, the excuses they gave. The, uh, Pilate wasn't really too convinced of this, but they were trying to help him understand why this man needed to die. Uh, and it really boils down to the fact that Jesus was a troublemaker for them. He was controversial for them. Uh, it, I want you to look at this. Luke 23, this is just one part of the conversation between these leaders and Pilate. And uh, they're explaining to Pilate, they say, he, talking about Jesus, he's stirring up unrest among the people with his teaching, disturbing the peace everywhere, starting in Galilee and now all through Judea. He's a dangerous man, endangering the peace. And the peace that Jesus was ruining was theirs, the people at the top, the people that were on the top of a system, the people that had everything working in their favor. He was ruining their good life. He was not upsetting the majority of the people. He was upsetting the few people. There was this controversy that Jesus was stirring up with his teachings, with the way that he lived, with who he loved, the way he included people. Each of these gifts had uh, a specific uh, symbol or meaning of the different types of roles that Jesus held in his life, holds in his life. Gold was given, and it represented the king of kings. Gold is symbolic of royalty. Frankincense was an incense that would be burned in the holy of holies, and they gave this gift to, to symbolize that Jesus would be our great high priest, the one that would offer a final sacrifice and tear down any wall or obstacle that could happen to come between us and God. And, and myrrh represents this idea that Jesus is the great prophet, now, I know that there's some people that say that that's all that Jesus was, that Jesus was just a prophet, and that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying he held this role as well. There's a lot of prophets throughout the scriptures, but one thing that every prophet had in common is that their popularity would ebb and flow. Uh, prophets, you know, people were generally the, the, a fan, and then suddenly they'd be like, nah, I don't really like you anymore. You should probably go. Uh, a lot of prophets were stoned and killed and chased out. None of them really lived in the community because people really had this love-hate relationship with them. We, when I say the word prophet or prophecy, we probably all have different ideas that come to mind. Uh, but there's three primary things that prophets did in the scriptures. And, and it's interesting, as we look at this, we see how Jesus perfectly embodies all three of these things. The first thing is that prophets would speak on behalf of God to people. Now, you may be here and be like, yeah, that's great. I would love to know exactly what God thinks. I would love to have God just speak clearly. But I would ask, would you? <laughs> Do you really want to know what God thinks about how you handle your relationships or your resources or your influence? Do you really want to know what God thinks about how you spend your time? Because while it would be nice to get the clarity of this or that, this job or that job, you know, whatever the decisions are, it would be, be nice to get that clarity. We actually, I think, usually don't want God to tell us exactly what he thinks. 
That's a very dangerous thing. That's a scary thing for us to open ourselves up to that type of information. And so, you know, a prophet, absolutely, it's exciting. We get to hear from God who uh, provides for us and cares for us and has led us out of slavery and through the wilderness and into the promised land. This is all great. And also, you're going to also critique us. You're going to tell us how we're missing it. You can see the tension of this. It's, it's both good news and it's controversial. The second thing that prophets would do is that they would uh, tell, they would foretell the future. They would explain what the future was going to be like, and and oftentimes they would invite people to start living as though that future reality already existed. And the problem with that is that most of us really kind of like the way things are set up now. It's what we talked about in the first week when we talked about the gold and King Herod and how Herod was terrified of losing control. Herod was not a happy man by any account, but he was absolutely committed to keeping things exactly as they are. I don't want any change. I don't want to give anything up. I don't want to sacrifice anything. So there's this aspect of, man, what a gift to be able to know the future. And also, wait, so I have to start living differently now because of what ultimately you're calling us to. It's a challenging thing. And then the third thing that prophets would do is that prophets would display God's power through healing, and through miracles. Again, it's like, sure, bring it on. Healings, miracles, water to wine. Like, I don't see a bad thing about this. This is a great thing. Until it starts pulling the limelight away from the religious leaders, the ones who had the control of the scenario, the ones that were in control of the narrative of how things should be done. It's interesting. Uh, it, It may exist, but um, I couldn't find an example in the Gospels of where Jesus would do a miracle or heal somebody, and they were upset about a person being healed. They were always upset about, like, well, you did it on the wrong day, or uh, you claim to have power that you shouldn't, you, know, you shouldn't be saying these types of things. It was never actually an issue with the miracle. It was always an issue with this fact of who Jesus was positioning himself as that made people incredibly uncomfortable because it meant that they had to adjust who they were in the bigger scope of things. Jesus embodied all three of these things of of what a prophet would do in his life and ministry. There's a number of scriptures that talk about Jesus referring to himself as a prophet and other people as well. Um, But there's a a passage in Luke that I want to look at today um, and and kind of the backstory of this passage and uh, something that we don't really often think about, but we, we get a lot of information about the birth of Jesus And we talk about that throughout December, and we celebrate this birth of Jesus. And then there's a huge gap of time. And then we kind of pick up again when Jesus was about 30 years old. And so most of the gospels and the stories and the parables and the teachings and the miracles, they all happen in about a three-year span. And so this story that we're picking up on in Luke chapter 4, Jesus has been teaching and telling parables and doing miracles for about a year, and then he comes back home, and he comes home, and it's the Sabbath, and so Jesus, as a rabbi, he goes to the synagogue, and, uh, and, and this is what happens. It says, the scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled up the scroll and handed it back to the attendant. 
and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Now, it's just worth noting that this uh, Jesus as a rabbi would show up and, and he wouldn't spend necessarily a week preparing a sermon like I do or two weeks or uh, whatever amount of time. They, he would be provided a scroll with a ton of scriptures and he would open it and read it. And then he would just, as a rabbi, they would all do this. They would share their understanding, their interpretation of what these scriptures meant. And so they hand him the scroll. He reads this portion that he, he wanted to read out of it. And it says he handed it back and all eyes were on him because everybody was like, okay, Let's hear what his interpretation is. Let's hear what he has to say about this. It says, then he began to speak to them. The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Talking about himself. Everyone spoke well of him and was amazed by the gracious words that came from his lips. How can this be, they asked. Isn't this Joseph's son? Like, wait a second. He seems wise and eloquent and learned. Uh, I don't know why. I, you know, I want to sound fancy every once in a while. Uh, but also, like, this is that kid that grew up in this neighborhood, right? His, his dad was a carpenter. And I mean, is this, how can this be? There's, there's excitement and confusion. There's uh, being impressed and being concerned or confused. And then Jesus says, you'll undoubtedly quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself, meaning do miracles here in your hometown like those that you did in Capernaum. But I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. There's a sense where he's like, I know you want me to prove who I am, but I just need you to know that no prophet is accepted in their hometown. This isn't going to go the way that you want it to go. He goes on, and I don't have this verse on the screen, but let me just read this. This certainly there were many needy widows in Israel in Elijah's time. Elijah, greatest prophet of all time. In Jewish history, I mean, Elijah was like the top of the charts. When the heavens were closed for three and a half years and a severe famine devastated the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them. He was sent instead to a foreigner, a widow in the land of Sidon. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah. Elijah and Elisha. And Elisha was the understudy of Elijah, equally great, all kinds of respect. There were many lepers uh, in the time of the prophet Elisha, but the only one healed was a Naaman, uh, was Naaman, Assyria, uh, Syrian. I'm fine. Uh, what Jesus is saying, and I just want to paraphrase this because I think it'll help us. What Jesus is saying is, you want me to prove by doing miracles that I am who I'm claiming to be. But I need you to understand that the greatest prophets in your history, even though there was all kinds of need in Israel with God's children who God loved, the greatest prophets, they said, this Gentile outsider widow deserves healing just as much. This unclean leper that does not belong, he's going to receive the good news that there's a God who heals that sets captives free, that breaks oppression. Jesus is saying, you need to understand something. You want me to impress you, and you're already sitting on the top of the system of power. And I'm not here for you. I'm not here to impress you. He goes on in verse 28, it says, when they heard this, the people in the synagogue were furious 
which I got to say, nobody has gotten furious that I know of at any of my sermons. So I guess I got to work a little harder. Jumping up, they mobbed him and forced him to the edge of the hill on which the town was built. They intended to push him over the cliff, but he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. They were furious. They mobbed him and tried to kill him. So in the question, was Jesus a troublemaker? <laughs> For many people, the answer is absolutely, constantly. For people that refused to acknowledge that maybe they needed to expand their understanding, for people that refused to acknowledge the signs and the miracles and the goodness of who Jesus was as the Son of God, it was very troubling, very controversial, very difficult for them to wrap their minds around this. When these insiders were confronted with the fact that they were no better or no more loved by God than the outsiders. They were furious, and their pride blinded them to the good news. Their insecurity kept them from experiencing the good news, the, whole, the wholeness of what God wanted for them. Their pride, their inability to imagine that maybe they had it wrong, their inability to see that maybe, uh, maybe there's a different way, Maybe I'm not as perfect or flawless or wise as I like to think that I am. Their pride blinded them to this reality. They were so offended by what Jesus said that they tried to kill him. Now, I don't know that any of us have been that offended by what Jesus says. And I think that in some ways, that's a problem. I wonder how much trouble Jesus has caused in your life. I wonder how much controversy you've navigated internally in your way of thinking, in your way of relating, in your way of understanding faith and God and love and relationships and how to live life and how to use the, the power and the time and the resources that God has given you. I wonder if there's ever been anything that's really been stirred up inside of you and it's been frustrating. Because if I'm honest with you and as a pastor, I try to be. I'm not sure how often I've been frustrated with Jesus. It is so easy for us to be like, yeah, I get it. Love and forgiveness, and we should accept people, and, and I've got, it's like a neatly organized thing. And yeah, there's like a few poorly lit corners of my interior world, but Jesus has a lot of grace, and so I'm going to ignore it. I think this is how most of us go about living our lives. I don't actually want to have to look at all this stuff. But the troublemaker is here to cause us controversy. Controversy is the word. It's not that God was abandoning the religious leaders. It's that God was trying to invite everyone to experience his love and his goodness regardless of where they came from. He was trying to, to blow open the status quo Jesus' teachings and the way that he lived was always controversial because it upside down the, the, the way that the system was currently working. And any time that you engage with or care for people that nobody else wants to, any time that you try and include the outsider, any time you try and cross over a line to, to, to include or care for or, or serve or uh, whatever it may be, 
it's always going to cause controversy. I remember, um, man, there's, a, I guess, a lot of examples of this, but one that just popped into my mind was a couple years ago during the height of the, um, what's the word that I'm looking for? The protests during, uh, after George Floyd was killed and the protests. And uh, I mean, it was just, it was everywhere. And I remember there was this one incident, I can't remember where it was, but I remember there was this one incident where there was this um, Klan member who was about to be beaten, probably to the point of death, and there was a, a photo that was taken of this black young woman who laid herself over top of him to keep him from being beaten. And I remember that photo causing controversy because there's some that would say, absolutely not. Not him. No, this is not okay. But there's this willingness, and in that moment, I can't imagine that she had even time to think, but this willingness to say, absolutely, I'm going to care for this person that nobody else may care about. And we could extrapolate that across a thousand categories. Their pride was blinding them to the good news that Jesus came to fulfill. It's how a message of, of good news and freedom and miracles can become quickly, wildly offensive and controversial. Jesus prophetically calls us out of our comfort zones and he invites us all to live a different way, to navigate our relationships and our lives in a different way. He's inviting all to experience his grace and he's inviting all of us to live with a different future in mind, to recognize that things are going to be different in the future. There is a kingdom where things are as they should be and we need to begin living that way now. And for people that were comfortable in the current kingdom, that was very upsetting. There's a, a quote that's gone around for years, um, and uh, it actually was from a, an author, uh, probably about 70 years ago, it was writing in a newspaper, but he had this phrase where he talks about how there's an importance about comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. And I think really, in the life of Jesus, the good news was always seen as good news to the people that were afflicted, to the people that were pushed out or downtrodden or at the bottom of the systems of power. It was always good news. Healing, freedom, absolutely. And for the people that were comfortable at the top, it was deeply frustrating and scary and unnerving. And it was this willingness or this I guess this refusal to acknowledge and unwillingness to acknowledge that there was a different way. I'm all over the place, Kristen. I apologize. Um, Jesus refused to avoid topics that will ruffle feathers, and Jesus refused to live a comfortable life at the risk of others not experiencing the fullness of God. The wise men gave him myrrh because they knew that this baby would grow up to be a troublemaker in the best of ways. As John Lewis said, uh, he said, never, ever be afraid to make some noise and get in good trouble, necessary trouble. And I love that phrase. Um, it's a beautiful idea to recognize that we're invited to get in the good kind of trouble, 
to ruffle some feathers. And I, over the last few years, there's been a lot of people that I think that um, have used this idea as kind of like a hall pass to be a jerk to anybody. And they're like, you know what? Not everybody like Jesus either. And I'm basically just kind of the same, you know? Uh, so <laughs> there's like been this freedom to say like, well, if you don't like what I have to say, that's not my fault. I have the corner on truth. I have the corner on what love is. I know exactly how COVID should be dealt with. <laughs> I know exactly, I mean, everybody's a professional in every single thing. And there's this freedom that we've somehow felt to say like, well, uh, you can be as upset with me as you want, but you know, that's on you, that's not me. Jesus also wasn't, you know, not everybody loved him. And I think it's important for us to recognize that that's not what this is talking about and that's not what we're being invited to. First of all, John, when John wrote about who Jesus was, he described him as the perfect balance of grace and truth. And none of us have that balance. <laughs> uh, and, and so there's, there's one piece of it there. And I was trying to think of, well, how do I make sure that um, I'm not just causing trouble for people uh, at, at the expense of me just staying as comfortable as possible? And, and this last week, as I was processing through this, how do I find that balance of what is good trouble? What does it mean to to not be afraid of controversy, to not be afraid to lean in, but also to not be using my own human understanding. And so I thought about it this way, and I don't know if it's helpful, but I should always be experiencing more um, trouble stirred up in my own heart than I'm causing for someone else. I should always be the first one to allow Jesus to kind of upend the way that I think. I should always be the first one to be willing to say, God, show me the areas of my relationships. Show me the areas of my life. Show me the areas of my actions or my words or my thoughts. Help stir up the controversy in me first so that I can change, so that I can be changed and transformed by your spirit. We should be the first ones. And if you have not felt uncomfortable... <laughs> If you have not felt like Jesus has caused some trouble in your own heart and relationships, then you're not at a place where you can start causing trouble for others. We don't get to use that as a pass. It's always about us first. Amidst the beauty of Christmas and woven into the wonder of Jesus' birth is a very specific call to an action-oriented faith that does not rest in comfort, but it leans into the good news that is for all. So there's this reality for us that Jesus challenges us to lovingly engage the things that we most want to avoid. For some of us, that's things outside of our bodies, things like um, how do I get along with someone who votes differently than me? Or how do I sit at a table with someone that listens to country music out of their own free choice? <laughs> or whatever your list of top three worst sins are. Uh, for some of us, there's this invitation or this call for us to say, hey, I need to show up differently in my relationships, at my job, with my finances. There's things that have got to be flipped upside down for me to... To, to follow what Jesus is truly calling me to. For some of us, there's this external peace. 
And maybe Christmas is the perfect time for that, for you to sit down at the table with some people that you've been avoiding or fighting with or lobbing social media things at. But for every one of us, it is an internal thing. For every one of us, Jesus is challenging us and inviting us to recognize that we haven't made it. There is more growth and transformation and healing and beauty and goodness that he wants to do inside of our own hearts and minds. And that can be so frustrating. That can be upsetting because it's hard. I don't want to keep doing that. I don't want to have to look inward. I don't want to have to process this pain. I don't want to have to apologize to that person. Every single one of us is being called to look internally. When Jesus was speaking, he wasn't just trying to get people to like his nice words and ideas. He was trying to get people's hearts to be changed and transformed and help them to understand there's something internally that needs to shift, that needs to be mixed up, needs to be stirred up. So I want us to just consider that today. Paul wrote to the Philippians uh, a verse that may be familiar for some of you guys. Chapter 1, verse 6, he says that he is certain that God, who began a good work in you, will see it through to completion. And then he says a bunch of other stuff I'm not going to read for the sake of time. But you can. Uh, But what this clues me on is that you're not done. Like there's work that still needs to be done in each of us. And God will continue to do that work inside of us. But God is not going to force you to change. He is not going to take away the responsibility and the participation that each of us have in this process of being transformed, of experiencing growth and wholeness. There is an ongoing process. You haven't made it. And I know it's easy to say, oh, I know that. And if we know it, then we have to look in those poorly lit corners of our hearts and our minds. If we know it, we have to recognize that when Jesus was given the gift of myrrh, it's because he's going to ruffle all of our feathers and call all of us into a better way. The beauty of a king is that we have a system that we can choose to say, this is the way for me. The beauty of a priest is that we have a God who has removed every obstacle that could possibly exclude us from experiencing his love and the good news of Christmas. And the challenge of a troublemaker stands on the first two. We know the way. We know we're going to be okay. But can we have the confidence to look inward and allow God, as David wrote in the Psalms, to search our hearts, to reveal to us the ways that I need to be changed? Let's pray together. Well, regardless of where you may be at in your faith journey, I believe that everyone has a next step that they can take. If you'd like more information about what it means to put your trust in Jesus, information about getting baptized or maybe even attending a Discover class to grow more in your faith, you can visit us online at southhills.org forward slash Costa Mesa and then scroll down to the next steps section. 
If you'd like more information about tithing or supporting South Hills financially, you can visit southhills.org forward slash giving. Thanks again for listening today, and I hope that I get to see you soon.